you. We come this morning to the final chapter of the book of Hebrews, what we've been working on all fall. Hebrews chapter 13, which in your pew Bible would be found on page 1009. And today in the sermon, we're going to focus on verses 8 to 19. We'll read the whole thing. But before we start, I just want to call your attention to verse 22 of Hebrews 13, where the writer says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly. Uh huh. Wouldn't you love to see what the long version would have been? And we've been on this since September, y'all. Let's come to the word of the Lord in Hebrews 13, starting in verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this, in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. Amen. This is the word of our Lord. Thank you. 
Now, as we worship in this next song and stand, those from fourth grade, four-year-old through second grade are welcome at Children's Church down in room 12. If you're visiting or just passing through and don't know how to find it, just follow the horde and you should be easily able to find it. So please stand as we worship. Holy Ghost, our triune God, we come to you this morning praying the same thing that we have prayed week by week as we have worked through this book of Hebrews that you've given us. We pray that we would see Jesus, that we'd see him rightly, Holy Spirit, that you would open our minds and our hearts to love him more dearly, to treasure him, to be different people with different lives because we have met Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, in your word. Thank you for this letter of Hebrews, Lord, and we pray that you would give our hearts and minds to understand it better and to live it more to your glory and through your grace alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometime back when I was still single, I had a business trip to go on the next morning. And, you know, I'd gotten behind on life, so I had to do the laundry and pay the bills and clean the place. And so I find myself at 3 a.m. sitting in the basement of the townhouse I lived in folding laundry with the because I needed it to go on the trip, um, with the TV on to keep myself awake. And you know what was on TV. Now, not the show. I don't remember what the show was, other than it was probably terrible. But the commercials. Commercial after commercial after commercial after commercial for, wait for it, sleep aids. (laughs) Now, if your job is to sell sleep remedies... Apparently, at 3 a.m. on local TV, you have what we'd call a target-rich environment, right? Uh, And we're always looking for the new, new thing that will just fix our problem. You know, particularly if you're tired and exhausted and worried, you're just looking for that new, new thing. If I take this one, it's going to fix it. Maybe even a better example, diets. You know, if you don't think this is true, just go look at your spam filter. Now, there was Atkins, there was Mediterranean, there was this, there was that, 10,000 before, 10,000 to come, every one of which says, if you just do this one, it's going to fix your problem. You're not even going to be hungry, and in a month, you're going to have taken off 20 pounds. It's the miracle diet. We want the new, new thing that's just going to fix our problem, even better exercise. Think of TV commercials again. You know, if you just twist this way while balancing on this thing and standing on your head for 10 minutes a day, you won't even sweat. You'll have a flat tummy and a firm posterior. Three payments, free knife if you order in the next 20 minutes, right? We're always looking for the new, new thing that's just going to fix the problem for us and make life work better. But sometimes what we really need is the old, old thing. You know, one of my friends who's a personal trainer, we're working out together, and he looks up at me one day and he says... You know what you really need? Not me, but just in general. You know what people really need? Close your mouth and move your legs. You know, what was he saying? Eat less, exercise more. He said, that's really what it is. Now, I mean, let's give credit to the diets. The sausage McMuffin with egg that I had this morning certainly packed a bigger punch than a pile of grapes. I get that. But my friend's right. At some point, what we need is just the old, old thing. It's easy to say. It's just hard to do. The author of Hebrews is coming to us and saying, you don't need the new fad. You don't need the new idea, the new teaching, the new style of church, the new leadership of church, the new this, the new that, the new ever. You need Jesus. 
the old, old thing. Verse 8 says he's the same yesterday and today and forever. And that's what we need, not the new fads. This has been the point of the book of Hebrews all along. Has been, in fact, what do we need? We need Jesus. The superiority of Jesus and the sufficiency of Jesus across anything. And that's the point today. The point today is this. Because Jesus never changes, we can believe right, we can think right, and we can live right. Because Jesus never changes. I get this is bad grammar, but you'll remember it this way. We can believe right, we can think right, and we can live right. And so we're really just going to look at one point, verse 8. Jesus Christ never changes. And then we're going to look at the three ways, belief, faith, or, yeah, belief, thought, and life, that the author applies that. So the point is there, right in verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Now, there are not a lot of things in this world that stay the same. Last time I went home, I drove by my old elementary school. But it's not there. It's the library. Um, I could go downtown to drive by my old office or go up to visit my... Except the firm closed it 10 years ago. You know, even in geopolitics, it's this way. It was once said that the, world, the sun never rose nor set on the British Empire. But it's certainly, for practical purposes, not that way today. No nation stays on top forever. Even the very ground beneath our feet, we find out is constantly shifting and twisting and changing and until you have an earthquake. And that's why it's so unnerving. At least I thought the ground was good. But unless you've been desensitized by life in California or something, it really freaks you out. Things are always changing. People are always changing. It's one of the scary things about marriage, right? I'm going to marry him or her, and I know they're going to keep changing, and now I'm sort of signed on with them. Now, my poor wife, Jill, she married a guy who was going to go be a pastor, And she got a guy who's going to go be a pastor and said, oh, and maybe a PhD. Sorry about the eight more years of school, honey. Now, it's a pretty mild version, but a lot of you have really suffered through this. You're dating somebody, and they change. You know, things are going great. You're having a wonderful life, wonderful time, and then one day they call you up, and boom. And you think, what did I do differently? What did I... Quite possibly nothing. They changed. They fell out of love with you. You know, they really fell out of infatuation with you, but it feels the same on the receiving end. And it hurts because people change. The point of this section of Hebrews, verse 8, is that Jesus Christ will never change. He has the same yesterday, he is the same today, and he will be the same forever. Now, what does that mean? In what way? I mean... We're about to go into Advent where Christ was born as a physical human baby that you could hold in these two hands. Certainly by the time he was 30 and walking around teaching, he had changed in his body, right? I mean, he was fully human. He grew up just like any other person. So it's not that his body never changed. What never changes? Well, let's think about it in the categories. Yesterday, today, and forever. What was Jesus Christ yesterday? Jesus Christ, from time before time, fully God, in what we celebrate in the Christmas season, became incarnate, became a person in a way that's completely mysterious. How can you be fully God and fully man? We don't know. But Jesus Christ truly, honestly became a person. Grew up, lived a life when he was 30, started a three-year public ministry where he loved people like you've never seen love before. He healed disease. 
He brought people the knowledge of what God was really like. He cared for people and taught people and mentored people for which he was hung on a cross. Hung on a cross, killed in the most cruel, most painful way the world knew how to kill someone. Dead, really dead, not sort of dead, really dead, buried in a tomb. Three days later, rose from the dead in a stubbornly physical, stubbornly historical, stubbornly actual true way. Walked around, was seen by people, touched by people, ate things in front of people until he ascended up into heaven where he reigns right now at the right side of the Father. That's what Jesus did yesterday. That's what Jesus did in the past. And it's a question of fact. It's a question of history. Does that seem like crazy talk to you? Just to pause. If that seems like crazy talk to you, or if that seems just wild, or you're not sure you really believe it, wait, you guys here really think that happened? Yes, we do. But if that's, if that's kind of crazy, or if the implications of that are sort of mind-blowing, and you think, I'm not sure where I stand on all this, I want to give you a, a challenge, an invitation, and encouragement, all wrapped up in one. Starting in mid-January, on Wednesday nights here at the church, we're going to be piloting a class called Christianity Explored. It's eight weeks long on Wednesday nights, and it's for people who need to explore who was Jesus really? What does it mean? What, what would my life be like if I really believe these things? Do I believe these things? Why would I believe these things? If that's the spot you're in, watch your bulletin next week or call the church office and come for eight weeks and really dig into this question of who is Jesus? What did he do? Because yesterday he died on the cross, full of love for you and for me. That's yesterday. What is he today? This is what Jesus can mean to us today. Because he died on the cross, the scriptures tell us, you and I are free from the penalty of sin. The message of the scriptures is that every one of us has done what we call sin, has done wrong, both by doing what we ought not do and also by not doing things we ought to have done. And biblically, it's a capital offense. Every one of us deserves, in fact, to die for our sin and to feel the wrath of God. But the message of the gospel is that when Jesus hung up there on that cross, he bore the penalty for you and for me, that for all who believe in his name, he took our sin and he gave us his life, life eternal with him. So first thing it means for you today is that you have freedom from the penalty of sin. But secondly, it means you have a reason for your life today. What do I mean by that? Well, if you are really convinced that God didn't create anything, this is all a cosmic accident that we're in, you and I and all of us are just atoms that bumped into each other. You know, realistically, you're no different than a rock or a book or whatever else. It's just the atoms bumped into each other to make something a little more complex. If you think your entire purpose is the origin of chance and is to live out your life and then melt back into dust, that you have no eternal soul, that you have no eternal purpose then you really don't have a great reason to live. Come on. You really don't have a great reason to care so much, to strive so much. You really don't have a great reason to care about things like people who are trafficked. You really don't have a reason to care about people who are exploited because they're just a cosmic accident. They're just going to melt back into elements anyway. You really don't have, we really don't have a great reason for life today unless we understand that we will live on, that every single person in this room and on this world is in fact immortal. 
So today, Jesus gives you salvation from sin, freedom from the punishment of sin, and a reason to live, and a reason to strive. So the question about today is this. Is Jesus the same thing to you today as he once was yesterday? Or was Jesus a phenomenal experience at camp one time a long time ago? Or a great flourishing time when I was in college? Or a wonderful thing when I first believed, but you know, if I'm really honest today, he's not what he once was. Well, the whole point Hebrews is making is if that's the case, it's not Jesus that changed, it's we that changed. So maybe we need to recalibrate. Maybe we need to return to understanding who he really is. So that's yesterday, that's today. What about tomorrow? Because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, tomorrow, and the day after, and the day after, and the day after forever. Scriptures are really interesting, in fact, the way this verse is put together in the original language. The words aren't in the same order as in your English Bible. To be really wooden about it, the verse says, Jesus Christ, yesterday and today, is the same, and forever will be. Do you worry that maybe Jesus Christ might just fall out of love with you? I mean, I do, to be honest. If I think about myself, I'm a pretty hard guy for Jesus to love. I mean, I'm this bundle of stresses and concerns and overwork and worry and idolatry and struggle and run. I mean, I fall out of love with him all the time, right? And run after some sin instead. And I come crawling back in sort of repentance that's only halfway even there, only to turn right around and run off to the same sin again. And you think, man, I, I must be kind of hard for the Lord to love. You know, the Bible's image for us, one of the main images for us in the Bible is that we are adulterous lovers. And you think, if we're that way, wouldn't Jesus just say, done with you? But the message of the scriptures is, no, what Jesus was yesterday, what Jesus was today, what Jesus is today, is what he will be forever. He will never fall out of love with you. He will love you just as much for the rest of time as he loves you right now and as he loved you when he crawled up on that cross, when he was nailed up there. Now think about what that means. If that's the case, it means you don't need Jesus and the newest fad. You don't need Jesus and the newest style of doing church. You don't need Jesus and the new job. You don't need Jesus and the new spouse. You don't need Jesus and a different boyfriend. You don't need Jesus and a new job. You and I need Jesus. He is enough, he has always been enough, and he will always be enough. That's the gospel. Amen? All right, if you said amen, you're all in then. The author of this book draws it out in two or three, in three particular categories. But if Jesus really is Lord and Savior, everything we just said he is, he gets our whole life, every bit of it. We don't get a spot where we say, Jesus, you don't get to play around here. I'm keeping this one for myself. We cast the whole thing before him, whether it's one of these three areas or something else. But precisely because Jesus never changes, we do change. Precisely because he never changes, we can rest in who he is, we can rest in his grace, and we can be made different. In fact, made into his likeness, the scriptures say. Now, the author of Hebrews draws out three areas where that happens. First, that we can believe right. Look at verses 9 through 12, starting in verse 9. Keep away from all sorts of strange teachings. Um, 
Knowing who Jesus really is is the very beginning of discernment to understand what's false and true teaching in the church. Or put it better, knowing who Jesus really is protects you from Christian weirdness, okay? There is all sorts of Christian weirdness that's going to come through your inbox. It comes through mine every day. It's sometimes written in big theological tomes. It's sometimes written in little notes. It sometimes comes in conversations. There are all sorts of Christian weirdnesses out there. And knowing who Jesus is is the foundation of not falling for that. Please don't believe it because it's written on the internet. Please don't believe it because it's written in an email. Please don't believe it because it's written in a book. Test it against who Jesus is. And the way this usually happens, the way false teaching usually comes into a church is not anti-Jesus, at least on its face. It's usually what you might call Christ plus. False teaching usually shows up in a church as, yes, Jesus is wonderful, and if you add this one thing to Jesus, you will be complete in the Christian life. Christ plus this behavior, Christ plus this community, Christ plus this style. False teaching usually comes in as Christ plus something. Now, for the Hebrews, it had something to do with food, according to verse 9. We don't really know what it was. The way verse 10 reads, you might say it's part of the Jewish dietary law, that it was Christ plus keeping the Jewish dietary laws. But really... If you look at the context, it could just as easily be something like happened in Colossae, which you see in Paul's letter to the Colossians, which was much more of a Greek food idea, that you were be full spiritually if you just kept the right diet. There were all sorts of these things that were rife through the ancient world. We don't know. It doesn't really matter. But the temptation they had was Christ plus food. And to answer that, the author goes, verses 10 and 11, says, let me remind you, in a sense, what we've been talking about the entire letter, that Christ is superior to everything out there. And so he compares Christ to the Jewish dietary laws, particularly the sacrifices. Now, the way an Old Testament sacrifice worked, most of them, if you brought an animal to the tabernacle or temple to be sacrificed, the priests would butcher it, sacrifice it. Some of the choicest parts would be given to God via giving them to the priests. And then you yourself, actually, they would roast the rest of it, and you would eat part of the sacrifice he brought. There's nothing wrong with that. That was not selfishness creeping into the Old Testament. This is the way God's law had let it out. It was a celebration when you brought an offering to God. And if you lived in a society where you almost never ate meat, eating a portion of the sacrifice was part of celebrating God's goodness. But there was one type of offering that didn't work that way. It was the sin offering. This is what the author details. In the sin offering, the animal was killed The blood was poured out at the base of God's altar. And then the entire body was taken outside the camp and burned because sin was a stain and it had no place in God's people. And the author reminds the readers that Jesus Christ is the sin offering par excellence. That Jesus Christ is the one who in his body bore sin in a way that we never could. He is enough for sin. So you don't need Christ plus. You don't need Christ plus this certain obedience. You don't need Christ plus this certain law. You need to rest in his grace alone. Because in that there is salvation and in nothing else. Now if that's the case, we can believe right. We can sift out Christian weirdness and stick with what the gospel says. Secondarily, we can think right. Verses 13 and 14. The author says in verse 13 that it was a disgrace for Christ to be outside the gate, outside the city, outside the camp. Why? Because what was sent outside the camp in the Old Testament were the things that were unclean, 
whether ceremonially or religiously or in whatever way, things that were unclean were put outside the camp until they were made clean again. So it was a disgrace to be unclean and be outside the camp. This is why the sin offering was taken out and burned outside the camp, because it was the ultimate blot, the ultimate stain, the ultimate uncleanness. And Christ, in enduring the cross, was taken outside the city and declared unclean, which he didn't deserve, suffering all the wrath of God, which he didn't deserve, because he was willing to go and take the disgrace of sin upon himself in place of us. And so the author says, let's go outside the camp to him, bearing the same type of disgrace. Well, we don't bear disgrace well, do we? I mean, in the lunchroom, you don't go gravitate to the person who's so awkward that they will socially disgrace you. You don't do it at a party. You don't do it elsewhere. We don't like disgrace. We certainly don't like disgrace for Christ. I mean, the chance comes up to talk to somebody at work, and they say, you know, do you go to church? Oh, yeah, it's a wonderful place. You ought to try it sometime. And that's where we stop, because that's about the most risk we'll take. As opposed to taking the bridge to saying, well, let me tell you about my Lord Jesus. Or somebody in a conversation just is scornful about the idea that maybe people really do rise from the dead, or maybe there is something other than just a naturalistic origin for the world. And you think, I could say something, but I'm not going to, because I'm just a little too worried about my reputation at this place. I've got to tell you all, I'm a pastor, and I get freaked out in these situations. It's just, we are scared of disgrace. What's the antidote for that? Verse 14. What does he say in verse 14? He says, we aren't hoping in a city here. We're hoping in a city that's to come. Let's explain that. The book of Revelation probably wasn't written at this point, based on when the books were written. But the same tradition, the same promise that we look for in Revelation 21 and 22, that Jesus will come back someday, bringing down the city of God, the new Jerusalem. Very metaphorical, but also very real, is the promise that is being alluded to in Hebrews, that we aren't living this life for this life. We aren't living this life with an 80-year-or-so perspective. We're living this life with an eternal perspective, and it's the perspective that lets us think right. It's a perspective that lets us understand why it's worth the risk to tell people about Jesus. This is true almost of, of all sin in our life, in fact. This is true of your lust problem. When you look at it really narrowly, you really want to do it because it's really exciting. If you were to step back and get the whole perspective and say, what person is this making me? What spouse is this making me? What boyfriend or girlfriend is this making me? You wouldn't want to do this. You'd say, I hate what that would make me. But we sin because we narrow in on the specific thing. We don't get the perspective. Now, if you cheat, if you look at the narrow thing, it might be worth it. If you step back and look at the risks more broadly, it's probably not worth it, much less who it makes you to be. But we always have a tendency to get our perspective warped, to think wrongly. But the promise that Jesus will come again one day, he is the same yesterday, he is the same today, and he will be the same forever is the promise that lets us think right, to resist sin, to resist a tendency to chicken out. And then thirdly and finally, we can live right. Don't take anything we've said about the fact that we're saved by grace alone to mean we don't do stuff. We do a lot, and we ought to do much more than we do. We are changed into the image of Christ our Lord. We're not saved because we became like Christ our Lord. We are saved, and then because we are saved, we become like Christ our Lord. And the author draws out three particular things. He says, we share, verses 15 and 16. 
Our God has been incredibly open with us. He has shared with us his hope, his glory, his love. Likewise, we are to be people as Christians who hold our possessions and our lives with open hands, who are ready to be generous, to share, not just materially, of our time, of our care, of our concern, of our effort. We are people of open hands. Second, verse 17, we're people who follow leaders. Now that probably needs some explaining. What's that doing in here? The point is, in fact, that the Christian life is not an anti-authority thing. It is very easy to think of leaders of any type, particularly in our world in our day, but even in the time of Hebrews, as the man pushing down on you. But the promise of the gospel is that God has given us the church because it is a good thing and a blessing to us. And the promise is, in fact, that God has given the leaders of the church because they are a good thing and a blessing to us. Now, Christian leadership, of course, can be abused. And this is not unthinking following of leaders who are self-centered, but when leaders, as in a good functioning church, are actually working for the good of the people of their church, then we owe them deep care and deep concern and give them a hearing. You know, if an elder calls to check up on you and says, how are you doing spiritually? They're not being nosy. They're trying to actually love you well. You know, if you're taking a class or you're, you know, you hit some belief that somebody in the church leadership challenges you and says, I'm not sure you're believing about that right. I'm not sure you're behaving about that right. That's not nosiness. That's not a power play. That's the love of the leadership God has given. So he has given us deacons. He's given us elders. He's given us board of women. He's given us staff to be a blessing to us when, when the authority is used right. The Christian life is not an anti-authority thing that we so much sometimes wish it would be because it'd be easier if nobody got in our mess, right? And then thirdly, finally, he says pray, verses 18 and 19. If we really believe that Jesus is the one who holds the world in the palm of his hand, the one who never changes and will sustain us forever, then we're going to quit trying to fix every problem ourselves or manipulate every person into doing what we want. We're going to come to him in prayer and say, Lord, here it is, and you know better than I do. You might say yes, you might say no, but I just bring you the things that need to change. I bring you in prayer what we need. We become a praying people. To sum it up, we do not need the 48-hour, solve all your problems, lose 20 pounds, overnight wonder fad. We need Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and will be forever. He loved you when he hung on the cross He loves you now, and he will always love you. So let's rest in him. Let's pray. Jesus, these things are so easy to say, but so hard to actually do. We pray you would give us grace to not be people who just love you with our words, but people who love you with our hearts and souls and lives. That you would give us the grace that your word would change us and make us different. that we would rest in your grace, for it's what strengthens us. And we pray you would strengthen us, Lord, for this week that comes ahead. In Jesus Christ's wonderful holy name, amen. Now please stand as we worship.